Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. From the Gospel of John, we'll read verses 2 through 6 and verses 12 through 14. Here now the reading of God's word, John 14, starting at verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Look down at verse 12, please. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If he shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it and in the consideration of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son that you gave him for the life of the world, that there is no other way, no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So as we consider the doctrine and nature of prayer, may we apply with strenuous accuracy and with love for you and your ways the words of this, your holy scriptures, so that we may be a holy people unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Here we have our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 14 with his disciples having troubles of heart and mind. He encourages them to believe in God and also to believe in himself. We saw last week in Psalm 62 that our soul waiteth upon God. He only is our rock and our salvation. We shall not be moved we saw the vanity of the creature from the highest to the lowest, so that when our faith is to be directed to a specific object, when our heart is to be poured out in prayer, it is only to be directed to the true and living God, God who is infinite in understanding, almighty in power, who searches and tries the heart and the reins. We are to set our hope upon him alone. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our redemption and our salvation. We are to pray only to him, to grow in our knowledge of his promises and confidence in his promises. We're also to take control of our souls. We saw David commanding himself to wait upon God and therefore his confidence increased, not merely that he would not be moved very much, but that he would not be moved at all. Now this, this evening we'll consider our Lord's words in John 14. First he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. First, 
Our Lord says, in my father's house are many mansions. This word mansion means a place where you may abide. It's contrasted with a place where you just stay like a hotel. Stay there for a few nights or a night and you go on to the next place. God's house is a house of houses, a house of dwellings. God in his house has many places to dwell. Though we have many troubles in this life, God's house will be our permanent place. Our pilgrimage will terminate in the house of Almighty God. He says that he goes to prepare a place for you. Christ is preparing the staying place for his people. Christ is going to leave his disciples. They've had him with them all these years. And they've been taught by him. They've observed his miracles, heard his sermons. They've seen him hated and betrayed. They've seen the ire of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians against him. They've seen him popular with the people and rejected by the people. They've seen it all. And now he's leaving. He's going away from them. And here Jesus assures them his reason for leaving them is to their benefit. His absence is not to be mourned. They shouldn't consider it troublesome. It should be welcomed as the final hope being prepared for them. And then notice, not only is he going to prepare a place for them, he says, I will also go and return, receiving you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. He will come again. The Geneva Bible says these words are to be understood as being said to the whole church. And therefore the angels said to the disciples when they were astonished, why do you stand gazing up in heaven? This Jesus will come as you saw him go up, so he will come down, Acts 1, 11. And in all places of the scripture, the full comfort of the church is considered to be that day when God will be all in all, and therefore it is called the day of redemption. Christ is going to come back to his people. He's going to receive his church after having prepared a place for each and every one of his believers. He's going to receive them unto himself so that they can be there where he is in the fullness of light and life. In the presence of God himself, he's going to bring his disciples there. That's why he's saying, don't be troubled. Don't be sorrowful. Don't be concerned about me leaving you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And furthermore, he tells them, whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Now, Thomas has his doubts. He says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? How do we know the path if we don't know the destination, Lord? So his mind is somewhat darkened at this time. Thomas's is. But he, they know Jesus. They know where he's going. They know of God's heavenly kingdom. He's already taught them concerning these things. They know Christ himself, which is the way by which they get to the heavenly kingdom. And this, again, is referring to himself as we see in verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. How then will the disciples get that everlasting kingdom? How will they come to that house of the Father with many mansions? Well, here it is. 
Christ himself. How can they know the truth rather than be deceived? Well, Christ is the truth. How will they have life rather than death and destruction? Christ is the life. Christ is the embodiment, the chief cornerstone, and the sole via or pathway by which men get to the Father. Now, as the truth, that could be contrasted with lies, but sometimes the Bible talks about the truth versus the shadow. It's not that it's a lie, it's just a reflection of the thing. So in the Old Testament, what did we have? We had Moses and Aaron, David and Samuel and the prophets. They were types and shadows, the institutions of the ceremonies, types and shadows pointing forward to Christ, representing him until he showed up. And were they means sufficient to get men to God? No, they weren't. They were sufficient to build up the faith of the elect in the coming Messiah. That's where they had salvation. He is the only way to the Father. There was not a way in the Old Testament through observing the ceremonies, no. Only so far as it pointed them ahead to Christ himself through whom they had access to God's throne room. Cyril of Alexandria says we have all in him. If we have the way, if we have the truth, if we have the life in Christ, what more do we need? Nothing. No man cometh unto the Father, he says, but by me. Now this is one of those generals that's given a particularization. The general statement is, no man cometh unto the Father. If that was all he said, there is no hope for any of us. No man cometh unto the Father. That's the general statement. Then notice the exception. But by me, he says. Here is the mode of access to the Heavenly Father. Do you know Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father. How can we say that? Through him. That's the only way we can say that. Is that we come through Christ the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The others are not the way. They are not the truth. They are not the life. Christ and he alone are these things. He alone mediates our prayers, our praises, our worship of God, and our possession of life everlasting, and all the benefits of God's salvation. That's the only place you can find them, in Jesus Christ and him alone. I note then this doctrine. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one mediator between God and man. Now a mediator, he represents parties and he brings them together so that they may be united instead of at variance or fighting. He reconciles them. He's in the middle. Media is in the middle. Here are the two parties fighting. The mediator brings them together and makes peace. He causes there to be unity as opposed to hostility. And there's only one mediator between God and man. The heathen, if you think about how they thought of reality, they had a mega god, sometimes called Zeus, but they would have the mega god, and then they'd have the demigods, and then they'd have the angels, and then they'd have men. 
And their notion of mediation was rather complicated because you might eventually want to work your way up the chain, but you've got to start low. Because then if you start low, you might have some success. And then if you have some success on the lower, you might get to the upper. And if you get to the upper, you might eventually get to the big chief, right? So you've got to work your way through the mediators, through the demigods, before you get yourself in a position where finally you get hearing. There is only one mediator between God and man. All creatures are insufficient. God in the flesh is sufficient, period, full stop. There's one way to the kingdom. There's one door through which you have access to the throne room. There's one veil to the holy of holies. Christ is it. Christ or bust. Christ or hell. That's it. One mediator, one way to have access to the Father. I exhort you then, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him alone as your hope and your salvation, as your rock and your refuge, as the way of access to the Father, both to salvation and in prayer. There is only one mediator. He is the truth to which all the types and shadows pointed. That's why we don't observe them. Because if we build up the shadows, we're saying the truth is not enough. Jesus says he is the truth. All the shadows flee away when the substance appears at the face of his glory shining. All the shadows flee away. Believe then on the Lord Jesus Christ to have access to the Father in prayer as that redemption and way of salvation through his blood. Now notice verse 12. Not only will Jesus be absent from them to prepare a place, he's also going to send them his Holy Spirit. So verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Remember, that's the same phrase, I go unto my Father. That's why he's going to prepare these mansions, but also he's going to send forth the Spirit of God, as we see in this whole uh, 14, 15, 16, 17 of John. We see the Holy Ghost coming and being poured out on the disciples. And that pouring of the Spirit is going to enable them to accomplish things greater than even what Christ accomplished. They'll do his same works plus more, he says. Christ would ascend, Christ would send his spirit, and he would do mighty works through the apostles, but not just through them, through all who believe. Now, some people believe very sincerely that this means if you don't perform these works, you don't have a second blessing like the apostles could heal a man by their shadow passing over a person. Or you might take a cloth from one of the apostles and give it to someone and it would heal them. Well, those are greater works, they say. See, that's greater than what Jesus did. He went and touched people or they had to touch the hem of his garment and they were healed. But Peter can cast his shadow over people and they'll be healed. Well, that puts us in a rather tricky position. That means the following. If you don't do those specific works, you don't believe. Did you see what he said? He that believeth on me, 
The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. So nobody's a believer who can't do what Peter did, right? If, if that interpretation is correct, that means there are no believers but the faith healers. And if they can perform genuine miracles and raise the dead, and you can take a cloth and a prayer chamois and send it in the mail, and you send them 300 bucks, and you get healed automatically, they're believers. The rest of you, sorry, you don't actually believe the gospel. Is that what we're saying? Because that's what it says. Unless he's talking about something else. Unless he's referring to different works than the passing by of a shadow and the raising of the dead. He says, all believers will perform these works. They will be Christ's works through them and in them, and they will be greater than the works that he performed while he was on the earth. And it's because he goes unto his Father. He will enable these greater works of believers because he's going to his Father and he will send the Spirit of God upon the disciples. Now, when we read the Bible, it's extremely important that we take into consideration the context. What does this say in the context of the whole Bible is the basic context, but there's also a specific context. What is this book talking about? And inside of a book, you might ask yourself, what is this chapter talking about? or the chapters surrounding it. And then you can also ask yourself, well, what do the next few verses tell me? If I'm not sure, well, what exactly does this mean? You might just want to look at the next couple of verses, and you might find out exactly what it's talking about. Verse 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now let me ask you by the context, what are these greater works he's talking about? Well, it appears it has some reference to praying in the name of Christ, praying in his name and him accomplishing specific things for the glorification of the Father through the working of the Son. That appears to be the answer, doesn't it? at least by means of the context, if we can discern what exactly these greater works are, it must be connected with prayer in some way. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, verse 13 tells us. Here, I believe, are the works that Christ works and those greater works of believers. Part of our faith is that we pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, to accomplish those things according to the will of God, so that the Father is glorified through the Son. Their faith of believers, our faith, is fixed in Christ. Their requests and our requests, how do they make it all the way up to the throne room of God? Well, it's in the name of Christ, he says. Now, the name of someone is their authority. Sometimes it's their person. Let's open to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at the name. What is the idea of a name in Scripture? Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, page 1179, please. We'll start our reading at verse 21. 
Now he's referring in context to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a prayer the Apostle Paul prayed on behalf of the Ephesians and that we ought to learn to pray for one another. But here's a snippet of this prayer. He's talking about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Verse 21, Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 20, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now notice, what are the names that are named? See how the Bible does this for us? It gives us other terms in a context to help us to understand. Okay, well, what is a name? It is, in this context, a principality, a power, might, dominion, and not merely in the age that we live in, but also in the age to come. There will be principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. Then it says that this name of Christ, above all these other names, is as if everything was put under his feet, like his footstool. All of his enemies are made his footstool. He rests his foot upon them. He rules over them. He is the head. They are under his dominion and his headship. Well, then what is a name? You might say it's the authority of some person their right to govern, their legislative power, their power to punish offenders, their power to command and to exact obedience. That's the idea of a name. Now let's go back and look at our passage in John. John 14, 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay. What principality, what law, what dominion does Christ have? That is his name. What is his rule or his government? What edicts has he made over his kingdom, for example? That is what we are to ask. When we come with requests before God, because that's the word ask, it means to make a request. We do so with our faith fixed in the name of Christ. He has commanded us to make these requests. Think about that. His authority requires me to make these requests. You know what? The, that's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's not his prayer to God. It's the rule of his kingdom. This is how you are to pray. You must pray this way. He requires it of us. So we know his will. We know his name. We can ask in his name, at his command, under his divine authority. He is the God-man. He is the mediator. He is the great high priest. He sent forth his spirit. We ask in his name. That's the idea. Under his authority. And what does Christ say? That will I do. His glorious name, not merely the aping of a name, like a parrot could say the name Jesus, but acting under his authority in reliance upon his kingship. When we make these requests, what will Jesus do? I will do it, he says. His glorious power, 
his efficient government. He will accomplish the glorious work by his power when it's done in his authority according to his will expressed to us. That is the word of God, especially the Lord's prayer. That's what he tells us. Here's my law. Here's how you pray. Here's what you can expect. Here are my promises. And when you come to God and say, these are your promises, these are your precepts, you think he's going to turn a deaf ear? Not unless it's hypocrisy and it's just words you're mouthing. But if it's from your heart, if you truly believe in Christ, if you're truly coming in his name, he will do it. Why? Because the Father will be glorified in his Son. This is the purpose clause, as we call it. That. That what? That the Father may be glorified. That's the subjunctive. It shows you the purpose for this thing. Why will I answer prayers offered in my name? For the glory of the Father in his Son. Do you see the greater works that the believers do? I believe this is what he's talking about. The Father of lights is glorified by this arrangement. He has sent forth his Son and given him glory and told him to take that to the people and <coughs> he has done so. <coughs> he has given the apostles his word. They have delivered it to the people. Now we know the will of the king. Now we know his name. Now we know what we are to ask. When we ask according to his will, we're not trying to discern whether we should buy from Starbucks or from Pete's Coffee. We're not trying to discern, should I marry this girl or that girl? We're not trying to discern, should I take this job or that job? We're trying to say, what has the king said? What is his principality and dominion required of me? And I will come to him and request, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And do you think he won't answer that? He will. Greater works will be done by the people of God through the power of Christ, through the name of Christ, that name above every name, the God-man mediator, the high priest by the power of his spirit, so that the Father may be glorified. And then he repeats himself somewhat in verse 14. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now this is extremely emphatic. When he says, I will do it, he uses the word I when he doesn't need to. In Greek, they can say a verb and it includes the subject, I. They can just put it in there by the ending of the verb, you know it's I will do this. Then he adds the word ego. I, even I will do it. Very emphatic. Christ himself will accomplish these requests. And it's pretty indefinite. Again, if ye shall ask, here's a supposed condition. That's the form of the verb he uses here. Let's suppose you make a request of anything according to my will, in my name. If there is anything I've said in here that you want to request, guess what? I'll do it. I, even I, will ensure that it is accomplished. It is rooted in his command. It is according to his promise. 
It is founded upon his power. It is requested through his mediation. Will he say no? No, he will say yes. I note then this doctrine. Our prayers must be offered in the name of Christ alone. Our prayers must be offered in the name of Christ alone. The name of Christ, his person, his authority. The power of prayer is not in prayer. Some people say, there is great power in prayer. No, there isn't. There isn't a power in some set of words that you ape. There isn't a little prayer circle that the heathens used to do. They'd take a wheel and they'd keep on turning it and it had prayers printed on it. Here, I'm going to pray. Some people have little beads. They pray the rosary. They just go through and say, Pater Noster, Quies in Kielos. They don't know what they're talking about. But they're saying words. There's power in prayer. No, there isn't. There is power in Christ. In the name of Christ. In his dominion. In his authority. In his statutes. In his promises. In his kingship. In his priesthood. In his mediation. In his work upon the cross. The veil through which we come to the holy of holies. That's where the power is. The power is in Jesus Christ himself. That name above every name. There is power in those gracious promises which we build our prayers upon. In exhortation, let us then have confidence that God will work great works, even greater works than the Son of God did as he works in answer to prayer. There is the work of Christ now, and there was the work of Christ then. The works now are greater works than the works then. Christ says, I, even I, will do it. His word of promise assures us. And what, let's remind ourselves, what has he promised? You know, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you might be saved. It's a possibility, but don't hold your breath. Is that what he says? No. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. That's what he says. He has a promise outstanding. Has he promised that all the nations shall fear him? You know, we sang about that. We sang about that in our psalm singing, that all the nations of the earth would fear the Lord and bow before his footstool. Has he promised that the seed of Abraham, his friend, will repent of their death and hardness and be grafted back in the tree? Oh, yes, he's promised that. Has he promised that all of his elect shall come to his everlasting kingdom? You betcha. Has he promised to supply our daily bread? Yes. Has he promised that his will will be done in earth even as the angels in heaven do it? Yes, he has. So then, let us in reliance and confidence as we saw from Psalm 62 upon God alone, directing our prayers to him alone, let us come in the name of Christ alone, 
so that he might do and accomplish these greater works. Let's pray.